This is the Resilient Schools podcast on the Bee Podcast Network. I am the creator, Jethro Jones. In this podcast, we help schools become resilient, which means that they are able to adapt and overcome any situation that presents itself. Enjoy the show. This episode is from a previous interview that I did on the Transformative Principle podcast, and I'm collecting all of my trauma-informed podcasts and resources here on this feed. So if you're interested in more of that stuff, stay tuned to future episodes where we talk about how schools can be resilient and to get access to everything that I've got around trauma-informed practices in schools and resilient schools, go to resilientschools.com and then connect with me by putting your email in at the bottom of the page. Now, here's our episode from the vault. I am excited to have Tessa Stuckey on the program today. Tessa is a therapist. She is based in Houston, Texas, and she is the mother of four kids. And we are anxiously awaiting her book to be published in the spring of 2020. But I just couldn't wait until then to get her on the podcast. You can learn more about her from TessaStuckey.com or The Mom Therapist on Instagram. Tessa, welcome and thank you for being part of Transformative Principle. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm really excited to talk to you because you are right in the middle of dealing with some of the biggest challenges that we are facing right now. And you talk about how to support kids and help prevent depression and suicidal ideation. And so Mm -hmm. let's just jump right in and start talking about that. What took you to that point where you wanted to work on this tough, difficult subject? Yeah, well, so I started as a therapist and I attracted a lot of teenage clients somehow, which I thought was really cool. I thought that made me kind of (laughs) cool. And (laughs) I was excited to kind of sit with some teenagers and um, help them through what I believe to be the most emotionally challenging years of one's lives. And I remember being a teenager and really wanting someone to talk to. So I was really excited to do that. But then they all came to me with suicidal thoughts and it was all over things that didn't fit some of the rooted causes that we've known suicidal ideation to look like. There was no trauma. There was no abuse. There was no debilitating mental illness happening with about 95% of my clients and their, their issues or their reasoning for thinking about suicide was, you know, their mom got mad because they failed their chemistry exam. Or their dad wanted them to empty the dishwasher or their best friend got mad at them. And at first I thought, no, this can't be, I got to peel back some layers and figure out where the trauma is, but there wasn't any. And I just found that that was the theme happening in the pattern with teenagers today. And it really scared me as a mom of four kids. And at the time my oldest son was four. So I had four, four and under. And it just really scared me that they were going to grow up in this world where suicide was so common and so casual. And at the same time, my community was dealing with a suicide cluster, which about six high school girls had killed themselves within a two-year span. And it just it just got really scary. And so I decided to figure out what the heck was going on. I was also, I was born and raised in the same town and that wasn't happening, you know, 15 or so years ago when I graduated high school. So it just was really perplexing. And I tried, I decided to dive right in and figure it out. And so I found six cultural influences that's happening today in today's world 
that I just feel strongly parents of um, kids of all ages need to know about so that they can choose how to handle it now so that this isn't in their future. I think that that is so fascinating because I've experienced that as well as a middle school principal, especially so much suicidal ideation that is not associated with trauma. And so a lot of the work that I do um, in working with other principals and school leaders is around uh, trauma itself and how to help uh, school leaders deal with that trauma that's coming into their schools. And what we can, what we continually find is that the things we put in place to help with trauma are helping with kids who aren't experiencing trauma, but are experiencing depression and suicidal ideation and other inappropriate behaviors that, that are causing them to not be successful in school and in life. So let's talk about those six cultural influences that, that you see that are causing kids to feel this way. Absolutely. So the first one that I talk about in my book is, and I've had a hard time deciding like what to title this influence there, but I'll just go with it to the point. I believe it's become somewhat of a social trend. You know, it's the word of mouth. It's happening. It's on the table for far too many because it's happening more than ever. And so it's going to be on the forefront of their minds. And so if they're having a bad day and they know that other kids have attempted it or talked about it, or have been hospitalized because of it, it's going to come to their mind a little bit quicker. And, you know, with the prefrontal cortex not fully developed, you know, all that impulse control and judgment calls, it's just not there yet. And I think it's just, it's happening so much that it's on their mind more. So people, yes, it's happening a lot and people are talking about it, but in trainings that I've attended and stuff, they also say that if you bring it up to somebody who might be feeling that way, you're not the first person to suggest it. And so it's fine to ask and to be open about it. So how do we, how do we balance that? Right? Yeah. See, and that's exactly what it is. I think there's a lack of balance. So I'm, I believe we need to continue spreading awareness and talking about it and making it a comfortable place. So it's not so much that they have never heard of it. And then all of a sudden, something happens and they're like, oh, maybe I should think about this too. But it's just being talked about now more than ever. And I don't believe it's being balanced with the appropriate preventative care. I don't think it's being talked about enough on the preventative side. So if we don't have that balance, then it's just kind of putting it, you know, a bug in their ear kind of thing. Yeah, that that makes sense. Okay. What's the second cultural influence that you're seeing? Okay, so the second one that I've seen, and this is probably the biggest one, the biggest change from, you know, when we were in high school is that kids today are used to immediate gratification with everything. Um, You know, you think about when you used to want to, or I know with my experience, you know, I wanted to rent a movie, I had to wait for Friday night for my mom to drive me to Blockbuster or wherever and, you know, scroll the aisles and pick something and then get home and rewind the video. And then I finally (laughs) get to see the movie. That whole process took a long time. And now today, you know, starting from a very young age, it's at the, you know, a click and that's it within a second, you know, and I think technology has been really great to add convenience to our life. But I think that when it comes to teaching our kids how to struggle they can't because everything has been instant for them. And so when they hit their teenage years and emotions get stronger, the hormones kick in and something happens that's emotional, 
they want an instant fix and there is no instant fix for an emotional hardship. There's just not. And they go in um, without the right gear, without the right coping skills to handle a struggle. So they turn, they want something immediate. And so if they're lacking prefrontal cortex, it's on the table for so many and they want an immediate fix, they, they are more likely to go to the thought of suicide. Yeah. You know, I have pioneers who travel across the United States in covered wagons in my ancestry Mm -hmm. and, you know, working through hard winters and, and farmers and all that kind of stuff. And I, I want my kids to experience some of that stuff because I see how it made them so powerful and I want my kids to experience that. But boy, it is hard to give kids anything besides instant gratification because of what exists out there. You know, it's, it's just tough. So we do a garden every year to teach them that it takes time for things to grow, but you know, that's, that's just one little area and it's not like you're putting in the same work as you are on a farm, right? Right. And it's not, it, that, you know, that I love that, that garden idea. That's so amazing. I, I wish more people did more of the delayed gratification projects with their kids. Unfortunately, you know, delayed gratification and patience just is not in our everyday life anymore. You know, we're not waiting for phone calls to get the news. We're not waiting for a letter in the mail. You know, it's, it's just harder. And so I explain to parents whenever I give my presentations. Like you kind of just have to think a little unnaturally to slow down things a little bit. And it doesn't have to be a sticker chart on behavior. It can be, you don't order what they want from Amazon on Amazon prime. You know, my son wanted a, a DVD for our car and I ordered it through regular shipping, not prime. And the little sweetness of him just went out to the mailbox every day for two weeks (laughs) for that DVD to come in. And it finally came in. He was just ecstatic, you know? And so it's little things like that, that I think parents can easily change a little bit or adjust in their everyday routine so that their child can build a little bit of resilience so that when um, something happens during those hormonal years, it's not the end of the world. And they understand that feeling. So that's the second biggest one, or that that's the first biggest one, I should say, but that's the second one on my list. Yeah. Number three, let's move to that one. Number three is lack of personal connections are being made. And I think everyone is very aware of this. I think that Um, Most people understand that, you know, because of our devices and because of social media, we're not connecting the way we used to. Social media was meant for connections and it does provide connections. Obviously, I would not have been able to meet you, but it, it doesn't create the same closeness and the bond and the true personal connection that kids and, and humans in general need to thrive through life. And so we're seeing more and more kids isolating themselves, falling into a loneliness, falling into a deep, dark depression, feeling unworthy and undeserving, and they kind of spiral from there. So it, it can be really dark for them. And, and I don't know if you've ever been lonely before, but loneliness is such a powerful negative emotion that, that can really put someone in a dark place and it's happening more and more. Mm-hmm. Being lonely in a leadership perspective, which is what many of the listeners are as school principals, is you you do feel that loneliness and it's you can get a glimpse of what some of our kids might be feeling 
But this is why I think it's so important for schools to be those places where every single kid has a champion and someone who can build a good personal connection with them. And that that is a real challenge, especially for some kids who are difficult and push away so much, especially in the middle and high school years where they want that space between the adults around them and and themselves. And and that's a really challenging position to be in, but you still got to push for that connection to happen. Yeah. And I think it starts, you know, today it starts itty bitty, you know, you'll see families out to eat and they are all on their phones or, you know, I know I was guilty of this when my first son was a baby and we go out to eat and he started to fuss. And then instead of, you know, addressing what was actually wrong, uh, it was much easier for for me to get out the phone and put Mickey Mouse on and, and keep him occupied so I can enjoy my meal. And that creates that disconnect right away, right from that early, early age. And there just needs to be more effort taken with making eye contact, checking to see what the problem actually is, you know, and connecting with each other. So what, when you get on social media and you connect, it does feel good and you get a dopamine rush, but what you're not getting is oxytocin. And oxytocin is that feel good chemical that we get when we hug someone or when we're with someone um, and making eye contact and kids are not getting to experience that from a very young age. And um, so we're seeing a rise in social anxiety too with teenagers. Yeah. So, you know, one of the, the little things that I do, you know, before we started recording, we record with the video off, but we start mm-hmm. the, I start each podcast before the recording by showing each other our faces, right? So that we can make that connection. And, you know, sometimes that can be awkward and uncomfortable. And, and, Mm. you know, uh, sometimes you don't want people to see your background and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. having that extra step there of, of having something to connect is, is really, really important. And without that, we just, we don't get what we need. And you talked about giving the kids the the devices and and how that just feeds into the mm-hmm. second one that you mentioned, which was immediate gratification. And so a lack of personal connection and then immediate gratification happening, you know, those are just setting kids up for failure right from the beginning. Yeah. It's a bad formula that we've, yeah. From the get go. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it's a scary thing. Let's move on to number four. Yeah. So number four is attention seeking. And so this is not new. A lot of situations for years and years and years have been the longing for attention. And I go into discussing what attention really is. Attention is is longing to feel important and valued in this world. And what we're seeing is less and less of that happening, that achievement of kids and, and teenagers and young adults feeling important. And that kind of goes back to the lack of personal connections and social media stuff. And so, you know, if somebody is longing for attention today and, you know, because suicidal ideation, self-harm, teen depression, teen anxiety is on the table, it has become a, um acceptable form to seek attention uh, with youth today. And so that, that's a big contributor as to why you're seeing more and more of that. Yeah, that is so interesting. And we would we would hate to say that anybody who says they're suicidal is seeking attention, but it is right. one of the ways that they do it. And 
one of the things that I learned a few years ago from a great superintendent that I had was that anytime there's a suicidal threat or ideation from a student, our response was to overreact and under sensationalize. Mm-hmm. So we made sure that that kid knew that they were important because they are. Yeah. And we did everything we could to make sure that they got the help they needed. They had the attention and they, they knew that they were worth saving. But then we under sensationalized and we didn't talk about, you know, we didn't make a big deal about it outside of just that one person. So we didn't tell yeah. all their teachers, oh, this kid, you know, is suicidal and we need to do something about it. We didn't spread around the school and make these announcements about how many kids are feeling suicidal. What we did is we made sure that right. that person felt like they really were important so that yeah. that that part of it, the attention-seeking part, would be taken care of. And there are other issues that contribute to it, as we're talking about. But that yeah. piece, we made sure that they knew that they were important and that it was clear to them. Oh. Yeah, I love that. I think it comes down to their hurting. And so whether they're seeking attention or they're, you know, annoyed with their parents, there's some form of hurt happening. And that's what I I think I want to make very clear is that I am not with my research. I don't want to minimize any of um, today's youth's emotions. I think that they are very much feeling this. I think that they're reacting to a lack of connection and a lack of resilience. And so, yeah, when you say, you know, oh, they just, he just did it for attention. That sounds horrible. But if you say it with the understanding of, oh, he doesn't feel important in this world, he's hurting and he's screaming out for that, you know, that that's a completely different way of looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Let's talk about number five. Okay. So number five is social media, because if you're longing for attention, it's very easy to Uh, seek it through social media today. (laughs) And so I kind of break social media down into five different categories. And I'll just briefly mention each one. Um, One being you don't need to connect face-to-face anymore because of social media. So that plays into the the lack of connections that are being made face-to-face. You know, when you meet up with a friend, you don't necessarily have a need or an excitement or a desire to ask, what have you been up to? Because you already know what they've been up to. And then another one is comparison. So we have this, you know, unrealistic view of other people um, and their perfect life. And it's very easy to kind of get sit, you know, stuck in that state of my life is horrible and their life is amazing. And then another point for social media is that kids can't turn their social life off. It is on 24-7. And I know my 14-year-old self would not have handled that well at all. <laughs> no kidding. Um, <laughs> um, and so then another point with social media, and this is this kind of goes into a big thing I think parents need to teach their kids because social media is not going away and we have to to accept the fact that our kids are going to be on social media. But the biggest thing I think is, you know, cyberbullying with, I live my life on the philosophy that hurt people hurt people. And if we can teach our kids that, you know, that social media is not a place to confront others about the big things. And if somebody is confronting you about big things, or if someone's just being mean to you, you have to kind of uh, disconnect from that by understanding that that person is hurting and hurt people behind a screen are much more confident to say those hurtful things. 
Um, and then my last point with social media is phone addiction. It's very real. It's very strong. I believe 99% of us are addicted to our phone. That is not a real um, statistic. That's just my <laughs> own uh, theory. Um, you know, we're getting that dopamine fix and uh, it starts at a very, very young age. You see kids on their iPads and their phones very young. And then when you take it away from them, they act out and parents are so confused over the tantrums or the behavior. And it's because they're getting a rush of dopamine, the same as if they were doing cocaine and then you're taking it away from them. So it's a scary, scary thing for sure. Yeah. You know, that's one thing with, with our kids, we have that talk a lot that when they are especially grumpy or upset about little things that don't really have any, you know, real need to make them upset any thank you wait Mm -hmm. that's the word i was looking for um they (laughs) they uh we say oh it seems like you've been spending too much time on your phone lately and what's awesome even though it's super uncomfortable tessa is they will also say it seems like you've been spending too much time on your phone lately and it's like oh that's a hard one isn't it right yeah (laughs) yeah so yeah yeah that hurts because it's true and we know it's true and that's that's uncomfortable Um, but being able to have those open conversations about it has really helped in our family dealing with some of those things. Yeah. And how powerful is that too, to, for all of you to admit that and take it and then struggle together. You know, I think that a lot of times what we see with parents and teens is a very me against you situation. And, um, if I know my 14 year old self, if my you know, if I was a 14 right now, 14 year old right now, and my dad told me that I'm on my phone too much, all I would be is defensive and he, you know, I'm against him and he's against me. But what a powerful thing that you're doing with your family where you guys are kind of taking it on. Like, you're right. I have probably been on it too much. Okay. Let's figure this out together. I like that a lot. Yeah. That really came to a head the last couple of months. I broke my foot and was Mm-hmm. you know, I couldn't do much, couldn't put any weight on it for two months. And it was really, yeah, really a trial for me. Who's a always busy, always doing stuff. And I just kind of like got into this funk where I was watching movies or playing games on my iPad way more than I should be and more than I wanted to. Right. And, um, uh-huh. and it, it really was setting a bad example for my kids. And, you know, they called me out a couple of times and, you know, that was just my routine. And, you know, I was feeling a little bit of depression myself because I wasn't able to do the things that I want to do. Right. And it took a while to recognize that that's what was going on. And then once I did, then I was able to like, okay, time to delete the the games off and stop watching the shows and, and things like that. And, and it's tough when somebody else calls you out on it, because when I saw it in myself, I was like, oh yeah, I need to do better. When my kids or my wife pointed it out, and I was like, oh, how dare you? What me? Yeah. And it was really easy to get I could hurt. Never. Yeah. Me of, mm-hmm. of all people, not mm-hmm. me. And, and that's just yeah. something that you got to like, you got to be able to deal with that appropriately. And it's really hard, especially yeah. when you're already feeling guilty about it. And then somebody points it out. Right. Yeah. And I think how, how big that is that you're a grown man and that was happening to you. So imagine a 12 year old, you know, an eight year old, a 17 year old, whatever. And they have a harder time uh, noticing it, knowing how to get out of that funk, knowing um, how to pick themselves back up and not getting defensive if getting called out. So, I mean, that's just very telling to hear that story. Yeah. 
I've experienced them getting frustrated when I do call them out. So I know that. that Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about the six cultural influence. Okay. So the last one I found was uh, pressure. So we live in a, a lifestyle where everything is go, go, go. I don't think people are getting the appropriate amount of sleep. I don't think that um, people are giving themselves mercy. I think that everyone is striving to be perfect. And I think that a lot of that has to do with social media. If you've noticed, a lot of these influences bleed together, Mm -hmm. (laughs) kind of blur into each other. But um, when you're stuck on social media, comparing your life to somebody else, a lot of times it it, you know, it pushes you to um, live an unrealistic, perfect life. And I think that um, more than ever, schools are pushing with the academics and kids are not knowing how to handle all of that, but they are expected to handle it. And I think that there's um, a miscommunication or something missing between parent and child to teach them how to regulate their emotions and to organize themselves so that they can withstand this go-go lifestyle that we are living in. There's a lack of balance. And um, so that that's the sixth one is a lot of pressure. Yeah. Ain't that the truth, man? I, I've really seen that in, in my life. And as a principal, what I am trying to do is to move away that pressure from external things that like test scores and grades and things like that, and move the pressure to this sense of accountability and empowerment so that kids are the ones who who have all the possibilities within themselves and we teach them to unlock those possibilities so that they can achieve greatness and not be you know all grading is and all test scores are are a comparison with other kids and right. it's it's not a healthy way for us to teach our kids what matters now I agree the other part of that that I found is that when I give kids an opportunity to compete and compare themselves to themselves, then they blow our expectations out of the water. Oh, I bet. Because if we have an expectation of, you know, by third grade, you need to be reading this much. If that's our expectation, a kid Mm -hmm. is naturally going to stop when they get there. And the teacher is going to stop pushing Mm -hmm. them when they get there. If, however, you're constantly helping kids grow and become better in their own individual way, they will blow way past that reading expectation because they're trying to get better than they were before. And that is a motivating, exciting, fulfilling thing to be involved in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, failure is one of the best ways to learn pride and experience the feeling of pride. And I think that parents are, are not really understanding how to allow their kids to fail. And I don't mean fail as in fail a test or fail a grade, but I mean, just in everyday lifestyle things, you know, they don't want to sit in the discomfort of their child being uncomfortable. But as adults, we know that we have risen the most and felt the most pride when, when we kind of had to come from the bottom or fail a little bit to get there. And kids today are not learning that they are, um, everything is kind of being fixed for them. And so parents are having a hard time not being fixers. I I teach parents how to be more supportive, be the supporter and the helper for your child, not the fixer for all of their everyday problems. Mm. That's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, Well, I'm writing that down. 
so yeah, that's my six cultural influences that I have found that have, you know, everyone was kind of like, what's going on? Why is everyone so depressed? And, you know, weren't, and I kind of was in that boat too. What is going on? Why, you know, we are not having to fight for our lives anymore. We are not going, you know, hungry and starving. Most of us are not at least. And, you know, we're not having to learn how to train and fight outside predators to stay alive. And, but somehow we're having to learn how to fight our internal predators. And that's kind of the scary thing that I want everyone to understand is that there's stuff going on within our everyday life that if we just make some adjustments, we will build stronger, resilient kiddos that can kind of take on this world. Yeah, absolutely. So Tessa, the last question that I ask is, what is one thing that a principal can do this week out of all that we've talked about to be a transformative leader like you? I think that the biggest thing is to understand kind of their own philosophies on the kiddos that they uh, interact with during the week. What, what are their goals for this child or each of their students? You know, I do a parenting exercise where I ask the parent to sit down and say, okay, if anything, when my child leaves for college or when my child moves on in life, at least I've raised a fill in the blank individual. And I have parents choose from a list of words, you know, motivated, driven, ambitious, humble kiddo. So that, and it simplifies their parenting. And so I would encourage educators and principals to do that as well. What, what are your main, I mean, the main core values that you want each of your students to take um, when they leave your school and really put that into practice with every situation that comes your way and every child that comes to you or every fight or uh, disagreement or anything, even with the staff, what, what can you really instill into every situation that will simplify your, your role as a principal? And also, can I just add one more thing? Also understanding that, um, this is not just a mental illness issue anymore. The the thought of suicide, the urge to self-harm is not just those who fall into the typical symptoms that we've known our whole life for depression to look like. It's, it's a mental health issue. It's a um, lack of balance. And it's more than just someone who's going to show obvious signs. Yeah, I'm really glad you added that last piece because it's, I think you're absolutely right that it's more than just something that we could that we could just classify in the DSM, right? And it's yes, absolutely. It, I I like the different approach of it's about mental health and not about mental illness, and how mm-hmm. um, you don't have today, you don't have to have a mental illness to feel these feelings. And there's right. all these other cultural influences that are adding to it that make people feel that way, and and we can overcome them. I think is the the hope that you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We just need to know that it's happening and then yeah, take action. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, Tessa, this has been fantastic. I appreciate uh, this so much. Just a reminder, yes, you can you. follow Tessa at um, on Instagram at the mom therapist and her website is tessastuckey.com. And thanks so much for being part of Transformative Principle today. Thank you. If you like what you heard, there are three ways that you can get more from it. First, share the podcast with your friends and talk about it with them as well. 
Second, go to resilientschools.com and download the roles in a Resilient Schools cheat sheet. Third, reach out to us if you need training around any of the topics on this podcast by going to resilientschools.com.